Welcome to Frankly Judaic, a podcast that explores cutting-edge Judaic studies research conducted at the University of Michigan. In November 1944, just a few months after the liberation of Paris from Nazi occupation, French Jews created an association of Yiddish culture in France. And from the beginning, they're actually thinking very much about how to breathe new life into groups that existed during the interwar years. This is Nick Underwood, a fellow at the Frankel Center. He says that eight months later, in July 1945, a theater group called Piat, the Parisian Yiddish avant-garde theater, staged a 10th anniversary performance in Paris to mark the rebirth of Yiddish culture in post-war France. And it's a remarkable performance. And it's one of those moments in history that you wish you could just be in the theater, right? So, And they stage three short acts. One is an adaptation of a, a, a Levick play uh, called The Orem and Malucha. They do this one-act play that I've never heard of. It's written by someone I've never heard of. And in the play Bill, it's described as a play about the experience during occupation. So it's a play in 1945 that is very clearly marking it as a performance about the French and Jewish experience during the war in France. Around the same time, several Yiddish newspapers and journals that had gone dormant during the war also showed signs of revival. So did the Yiddish Volkskorps, or Jewish People's Chorus. The reemergence of these Jewish cultural institutions was important as a testament to the resilience of French Jews and of Yiddish culture. But it was also an example of how the Nazi occupation and decimation of French Jewry had forever changed that culture, and it set the stage for the development of modern-day French Jewish civilization. In the interwar period, during the 1920s and 30s, French Jews had worked to build a sort of hybrid identity. It blended ethnic Jewishness and civic Frenchness with a strong cultural component. In the 1920s, and, and even more specifically in the 1930s, there was a Yiddish cultural project that existed in, in France, and they started to do this, this brand of kind of cultural production that tried to balance a, uh, a French kind of Republican identity with uh, a very Yiddish cultural kind of context to it. One of the most important Yiddish cultural organizations was the Kulturliga. It was based in Eastern Europe and had branches in Paris and throughout France. This group, along with uh, a Bundes organization called the Medem Farband or the Medem organization, these are really groups that are advocating and, and really producing uh, Yiddish cultural events, lectures. They all have their own drama circles. Piat actually comes from uh, what was originally the Kulturliga's drama circle. It kind of breaks off and becomes its own troupe. The Yiddish Volkskorps actually has its origins also with the Kulturliga as their original chorus. Um, so there's these institutions in the 20s and 30s that are starting to kind of create these groups that really become become the benchmark for Yiddish cultural life in 1920s and 1930s France. The high watermark of Jewish culture in France during the interwar years was in 1937, when the Paris World's Fair featured a modern Jewish culture pavilion. So it's in Paris that these cultural activists really kind of took these decades of work, not only in France, but kind of globally as well, and really tried to demonstrate what they were doing. And Paris was really a, a home and a hub for that. As for French Jews adopting a sort of civic Frenchness, that manifested mainly in Yiddish cultural activists joining and working with the French political left. 
definitely by the 1930s, uh, with the rise of the Popular Front, which was a leftist coalition government in France in the mid-1930s, we start to see, for instance, the, the, the French Communist Party or the French Socialist Party doing events and including some of these Yiddish groups, uh, whether it's the chorus group or maybe featuring a newspaper as part of kind of their uh, larger French leftist project. So that's kind of what I mean by this civic Frenchness. They're not entirely assimilating. Many of them are, are learning French. The Kulturliga and Medem Farben both give French language instruction, so it's uh, so people can learn to kind of interact in French society, whether or not at work uh, or just on the street. But uh, it is Yiddish is really the language that they're doing this kind of broader cultural project. Anti-Semitism was on the rise throughout Europe and the United States during the 1930s, and France was no exception. Yiddish newspapers and stage productions often spoke out against anti-Semitism and against racism more broadly. And to a degree, it worked. At least some components of the French non-Jewish left were beginning to accept Yiddish speakers and Yiddish culture as interesting and valuable for French society and culture. So we start to see people reviewing plays by Piat, and they will begin plays by saying, I don't understand a word of Yiddish, but I loved this performance. The staging, the light, the decor, the emotion, right? So, and then they would wrap up some of these reviews by saying, this is some of the best avant-garde theater that France has to offer, right? So they're embedding this Yiddish kind of culture into an aspect of French society and French culture at the time. And they're doing it as a way to show that these Yiddish-speaking Eastern European immigrant, immigrant Jews have something to contribute to not just the French economy, but to French society. During the war and the Nazi occupation of France, most of the Yiddish newspapers and journals and theater groups either shut down or went underground. Many Yiddish cultural activists joined the French resistance and many were killed or captured and sent to concentration camps. After the war, as France began to rebuild its civic and cultural institutions, French Jews began resurrecting Yiddish cultural institutions. Thanks to an influx into France of nearly 40,000 Yiddish-speaking immigrants from refugee and displaced person camps, Yiddish became a sort of language of cohesion, tying together the post-war Jewish community. And members of that community began once again publishing Yiddish newspapers and journals and staging plays and other performances in Yiddish, advocating for their community in explicitly Jewish terms. I would argue that if you stage a play in Yiddish about the experience during the occupation, there's something... There's a claim there about Jewish life, right? I mean, this is in this, these are plays in Yiddish. The playbills are produced in Yiddish. For example, a Jewish writer named Lily Berger wrote regularly about the new French Republic. And she's writing in Yiddish, critiquing and celebrating and contextualizing the Fourth French Republic. She's writing about this in Yiddish. So she's, I would argue, kind of coloring and really making a claim that Jews can participate in this conversation, and they're going to do it in a Jewish language. Of course, during the pre-war years, Yiddish writers and artists were also creating in a Jewish language. Then, the focus was anti-fascist and pro-French republic. But after the war, Yiddish cultural production in France took on a new valence. In the post-war years, we actually start to see language about 
and this is something that I'm seeing that is emerging in, emerging in many of the, the literary journals and the newspapers that I've been reading about the po immediate post-war years, is this, this kind of multi-directional, if you will, kind of framing of the revitalization of Yiddish culture. And by that I mean we start to see people use the word kiyum, which means existence or survival, uh, in the way that they're talking about what they are doing, right? So there is a journal called Kiyum that, that, that emerges. It runs until the uh, early 1950s. And it frames itself through this lens of existence slash survival. I actually think that the fact that this word Kiyum can mean both survival and existence is deliberate by some of these some of these writers because they are marking themselves both as ones who survive something but also as part of something that still exists and I think there's a, a slight difference there. Jewish cultural activists also adopted the language and imagery of renewing Jewish life and community. And of course, like many Jewish communities around the world, French Jews used the language of yiskor or remembrance. In fact, they blended the language of survival, renewal, and remembrance. It created a way of thinking and writing that helped French Jews mourn the tragedy of the Holocaust while also looking ahead to a hopefully brighter future. Something that I've been shocked and, and, and really uh, think is, is notable is really the way that these kind of very, I think, complementary but different uh, modes of thinking are really kind of blended all together. There's a moment of kind of looking back in terms of remembrance. There's a, a moment of looking inward as, as the kind of actual existence in that moment. And there's a mode of looking forward as renewing into and after that moment in France that I think is really interesting in the way that these Yiddish-speaking Jews in, in France are, are really kind of trying to highlight what they're doing. The Holocaust devastated Jewish communities throughout Europe. But for Underwood, France represents a special case. Unlike most Jewish communities in Eastern Europe, in France, Yiddish culture had thrived not only before the war, but was reborn and continued to develop after the war. Although we see a flourishing of Yiddish culture around the world in the immediate post-war years, most of this is happening in countries like the United States, or maybe Canada, or South Africa, or Argentina. These are places that weren't the center of destruction. These are not specifically in places where the Holocaust actually happened. You know, there were deportation camps in France. What happens to some of these activists during the war and then what happens in the post-war period and put those eras in conversation with, with one another like we were just talking about how the the advocation for the republic and anti-fascism is something that changes slightly in the post-war years and we start to see renewal and existence as being kind of like the focal points of the, or, the organizing principles of this community. Looking at Jewish communities in post-war France also helps us think about a particular aspect of immigration, specifically how language affects the integration of immigrants and refugees in host countries, a central issue in the United States and Europe today. These were Jews that spoke many different languages, and as I mentioned before, they saw themselves as much as being connected and a part of a global and French Yiddish cultural world as they did think of themselves as being part of France. And what does that mean for people who are doing that multilingually and operating in, in, in French and Yiddish and, and Polish and, and Russian and many other languages as well? So it really kind of gives us a sense of, of how people can belong in a place, which I think here in, in the United States is something that's very relevant. We have many, many language communities. I grew up in a bilingual household, 
so you know this is a this is something that is relevant i think even for how we understand communities here whether it's the united states or, or many around the world That does it for this episode of Frankly Judaic, a production of the Gene and Samuel Frankel Center for Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan. The executive producer of Frankly Judaic is Jeffrey Weidlinger, the director of the Frankel Center. You can find the Frankly Judaic podcast anywhere you get podcasts on any podcast app. And we hope you'll leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Thanks for listening.